G'day, welcome to Radio Notes, I'm John Murch and today is some insights into what I believe will be, even though it's a few months in at the moment, my 2020 Album of the Year. Yanto Browning, today's special guest. They are an academic at the Queensland University of Technology, have produced music with the likes of Kate Miller-Heidke, Mosman Alder and many more as well as did additional engineering vocal recording on a version of Jamie Lawson's Wasn't Expecting That that flew up the charts. Browning also was given the keys to finish an album they were working on with Tara Simmons, for which music writer Andrew P. Street of the Australian newspaper stated, This is a joyful collection of her sprightly, melodic, folky electro-pop. Yanto Browning, producer and longtime collaborator, joined John for a long-form chat about Tara, her final record, Show Me Spirit Till the End, and more. Let's get that connection first. When did you first meet Tara Simmons? I can't remember the exact year, but I'd say 2003. It feels like it was 2003 or 2004. It could have been 2002. It was almost 20 years ago. She studied at QUT and I studied at QUT and I think by that stage I might have even been teaching there part-time. I'm a bit older than Tara. So, yeah, I think I met her when I'd completed an undergrad degree and she was in first year. What was that first meeting like, if you can remember? What was the first conversations? <laughs> I heard her before I met her, actually. A friend of mine, a collaborator I used to do kind of electronic, more club-based stuff with, he had done a short recording session with Tara who he'd been in touch with through someone else. So I actually heard her voice on this track that he'd been working on that we were collaborating on. I thought, huh, this is something interesting. So I, I clearly remember hearing Tara for the first time. I, I remember that for some reason more than meeting her for the first time. When I did get to know her, I was just astounded at how advanced she'd become with this very particular aesthetic that she had around kind of glitchy cut and paste stuff mixed with cellos and, and almost folk songs. It was a real kind of unique thing right from the outset. I was taken by that very early on. I remember playing her back in 2007 uh, which was yeah. the recycling song, which, uh, the recycling bin yeah. song, I should say, which was a bit of an anti-radio anthem. But even in that, she said, to be in control, play God, was one of the lyrics of the song. She was a great lyricist. I think that song had actually been kicking around for a couple of years before it got released. I was certainly hearing the initial um, ideas that would become those first couple of EPs. And I didn't work on those EPs at all. I'd, I'd done that. Um, I'd, I'd worked on one track, the collaboration with Tara as a vocalist, under a different moniker that me and a collaborator had you know, way back when. And otherwise, she was quite self-sufficient in the studio and she was pursuing this quite singular set of ideas that things would be built around glitch, cut-up found sounds and three cellos, um, a double bass, a drum kit and her voice. She didn't really need um, – she had some help. Pete Gardner, another very talented local producer and engineer, I know Pete helped with tracking and mixing some of those um, early EPs. But, yeah, I didn't really work with her until 2000 and, uh, end of 2008, I'd say. Yeah, a little bit after that. So I'd known her for a, a long period before we'd really actually started working together and then that lasted a decade or so. Musically speaking, what was the mateship initially about? I'd been living in London for a couple of years and then I'd been in touch with T Tara had kind of contacted me out of the blue asking if I wanted to help mix what was going to be that uh, the Spilt Milk record. So I didn't really work in the production of that. She did that with Brian Luttrell. Again, someone who just a very talented producer who did a wonderful job. And then I flew in back from, I moved back to Australia because of the financial crisis. All my work in London was drying up really quickly. I think I arrived, caught the train up to Brisbane the following morning and just slept on Bryony's couch for two or three nights and helped them mix the record. 
And then that was where it kind of became, oh, I'm, I'm back in Brisbane now and, and Tara's doing really interesting things and we just started working together from then. Your piece that you wrote on her passing in coming up to this particular album, you actually did cite that no marketplace rather sounds that energised her. It was the actual music itself. It was so pure that there wasn't actually a market for which she was aiming for. Yeah, and as a result, I don't think there have been very many reviews of the record either. It's certainly going to kind of slide under the radar and kind of sneak under the radar entirely. But I think for a period she had had a little bit of Triple J support. And I think with We're Not Trying to Move Mountains here record, I think that in the back of our heads, I think that with that record, there was that, it was kind of unspoken, but there was this feeling that maybe it would be wise, not wise, the, the, the plan was trying to capitalise on that little, you know, a little bit and trying to make sure that, that the, the record um, was in line with what was happening on, on, you know, like Triple J at the time. And that sort of pervades the writing and the production of it a, a little bit more than perhaps we wanted in, in hindsight. But all of that was entirely absent from this record because the process of making it was cathartic rather than career-focused, especially when Tara knew the severity of her condition, that there was no need to even consider a, a career. It was rather considering what a legacy would be or what a final piece of work would sound like. She did state when asked, what is your biggest worry going through heading towards death? And number one was not being there to support friends and family grieving her death. That was number one. But number two, and I'll quote this directly, that I can't finish my record in time. It feels like my legacy because I don't have kitties. I think she wrote that three weeks before she died. And we spent a lot of time the week leading up to that and the week after where she was still more capable. We did a real sprint on the record at that time. And the only song that she didn't hear in its completed state was probably the, the final one, which we had just run out of time to work on the production. That's the one where we, we tracked vocals in the palliative care ward. And then it was unfortunately just really downhill quite quickly from there. So she didn't really hear, but it didn't change much from the initial idea that she'd kind of presented me. I feel like I had to make a couple of editorial choices on that one, kind of production things, you know, arrangement things, but I tried to keep it as that ridiculous 90s loop that she'd started it with. I didn't play with it too much. But that one, and she didn't actually... Um, no, that was it. That was the only one that we didn't, that I never had a chance to play to her, what is ostensibly the finished version. So that was Athens we were talking about there? Yeah, Athens. There's another track I do want to mention. I did actually see Tara's funeral, which in these times seems normal to stream on Facebook, but it was weird being here in Adelaide, South Australia. And that's the backing vocals that were added to Devotion. Oh, I knew I was forgetting one, yeah. They were added by Megan Washington, who performed at the funeral. Can you talk us through that process? I think Tara had run into her in like a suburban food court or something. Meg was back in Brisbane. Tara had met her. It was after she'd been diagnosed, but before she, it became, you know, like really serious. And they'd kind of struck up this, this friendship. And I know Tara always respected Meg an awful lot. And I knew Megan when she was a student, like again, like 20 years ago, and I'd run into her occasionally over the years at festivals and the like. But then she performed at Tara's funeral. And the fact that she was able to learn that many songs so quickly and then just sing the shit out of them. Like, she really, that brought me to tears as well, you know, and I was sitting there playing guitar in a couple of them. I was trying to grieve, but I was also just trying to take in Megan Washington sitting behind a Wurlitzer in front of me, like, 
just singing the hell out of some of Tara's best songs. Like it was just the weirdest. It was a it was a real mix, strange mix of emotions. And then that was the other thing that Tara didn't get to hear. Tara and I had spoken about getting Washington to do backing vocals because they'd met again. And I think that Tara was reticent to just ask her directly and, and say, because and, it's like a, you know, Tara used to call asking, like she'd say, um, I just, I don't want to give her cancer vibes or, you know, like something like that. So she didn't want to directly ask. But then after the funeral and then having a, a chat with Megan, it was, like, there was this one song that Tara had always mentioned that backing vocals, like Megan had sound great doing backing vocals on it. So yeah, we tracked the backing vocals for Devotion. That was the other thing that we did that Tara never got to hear, but I know that she would have loved them because again, Megan just did an amazing job. Talk us through Yanto because you were there. What mm. the experience was of Tara's legacy at that point at the funeral, the community getting behind her and saying goodbye. Oh, that's a tough one to answer. I mean, I, I, I don't have the words for it. I don't have a reference point. I haven't had enough young friends die well before their time who had that sort of support from the community and just the people that were there. Tara would bring people together. There's no doubt about that. Even before the funeral, I, 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 my partner's a nurse and she works in a, in a cancer ward as well. But even the, the wardies at the Martyr said they'd never, the people in Pellet, they'd never seen anything like what people brought together for Tara. The room that was just transformed with fairy lights and photos. And she was sung home to her tribe for about 12 hours by some of Brisbane's finest artists at the wake. Uh, just Chris O'Neill had been playing drums with her for 20 years and, and was able to play in that last band. Megan held it all together like like just a one-of-a-kind artist. Rob Davidson was there, you know, playing playing double bass. All of her old cello friends, I hopped up for a song or two, even though I'd never actually played live with Tara under the Tara Simmons artist name. I'd always just been a producer. The people from all walks of life that have been brought together by this this really special human, this really special little human who was much bigger than her stature in, in so mm. many ways. The first Instagram post that you did on Yanto's music back on the 15th of December 2011, Tara Simmons standing on a footstool playing some keys, most likely a moog in the background. Yeah, that's where she couldn't reach the top of the rack, with a little footstool up there. <laughs> I forgot about that. She introduced me to Instagram, which I've since probably abandoned, aside from a post every two years or so. I don't have any need for it. Our very special guest today is Yanto Browning in light that Tara Simmons couldn't join us because of her passing. The record was probably on track and then things turned. What did Tara have? She had breast cancer. It was a particularly nasty kind and she would have been diagnosed in, it was winter, let's get my years mixed up, it was winter 2017. So she had a mastectomy pretty quick smart after that. It was just such a... I don't even want to say roller coaster because roller coasters kind of have ups and downs and there actually weren't that many ups. It was just like she just took a series of hits of bad news one after the other. You know, it was only 18 months from diagnosis to her dying. The one moment of, of sort of hope was she ended up in the final place of a clinical trial that had had some promising results for that particular form of cancer. She obviously wasn't one of the lucky ones. So the timeline was winter. 2017 and then she died in January 2019 she got a lot of bad news I'm at my house now and I have a little studio under the house so we spent a lot of time here 
because I just had a firstborn in December 2017 as well. So mm. I was trying to balance new father life with making a record with, with my really sick friend. I remember clearly at least two times we were in the studio and then she would get a call and it would be another piece of bad news. The, the mood would shift quickly and and we'd stop making music and just have a glass of wine or dance around the lounge room and have, make her dinner and, and just keep her here for as long as we could so she wasn't feeling too alone. It sounds very peaceful there. Yeah, it is. It is. It's nice. It's the top of a hill and there's very few cars coming past. It's, it's, a, it was, it's, it's a nice spot. It was peaceful except for the six-month-old. I'm sure she found fun in that somehow. Oh, she did. She was the only person that, I mean, I don't think she'd mind me saying this, but just Sarah's humour to the absolute T, she'd be like, everyone else was very traditionally quite happy when you find out you're going to be a, a parent for the first time. And she'd say, why are you having a kid now? Because I've got cancer and I need to make a record. But she came around and she'd have great cuddles with that little one in the end. This year alone, you've ended up with two children, Tara's record as well as a second child. Yeah, it really, it feels, but it feels like I processed so much of it. That record was finished June or July 2019. And then it was kind of sitting on it for a release plan and timing things and all the stuff that goes with it. But it was finished seven, six, seven months before it was released. So it feels, yeah, it, it, it does, it feels like, and I haven't really had to pay much attention to how it's been received. I suppose I'm kind of curious and mm. I'm not sure if, uh, I mean, I, I think it's a good record, but it, it's a very much a product of a unique set of circumstances. So I hope that it stands on its own two feet as well as just providing an opportunity for my friend to leave a legacy behind. But yeah, it, it feels like that child was born last year for me and it's just the rest of the world is seeing it for the first time. You mentioned Tara's great sense of humour. I'm wondering if you could explain to us how you saw her looking at that abyss of death because she definitely, and people can check this on her Instagram stories, had a very interesting view of death and how to handle it. Yeah, she was. She had been preparing for that sort of psychic trauma almost her entire life. Tara had battled all sorts of issues with anxiety and depression and had responded to them really well. Like she'd, she'd kind of hit a good spot, on, you know, like it's almost unfortunate that she was just finding real mental, I don't want to say clarity, but being comfortable in, in, in her own skin and, and being more balanced, I suppose, mentally. And then she was hit with this. But the way that she responded to that, it, was, it, it gave her this unique clarity, it seems, in that she really just kind of looked at the world in an entirely new way. And all of the, the small things that probably used to weigh really heavily on her shoulders, it was almost like a weight got lifted. It was almost like the weight got lifted and was replaced by this horrible shadow. But when the shadow wasn't there, she, she had a lightness that was certainly not there when she was in her, you know, like early and mid-20s. And I think that that's clear in her last Instagram stories. And she wrote so eloquently about her experiences as well and was able to share that in a way that, I mean, I certainly would never be able to. I just, I, I don't feel that that sort of engagement with the privacy of processing your own mortality and then sharing that in a way that seems so open and without, you know, any airs. This might help some other people so I can do it. This is how I feel and this is how I've processed it. And, and hey, it's all going to happen to us anyway. So, um, you know, at least I've got the opportunity to, to process things and put my affairs in order. What I adored about Tara was that balance, and you've mentioned this, so please, if you can explain in your own words, that of facts 
and that of being a dreamer, nuts and bolts of something <laughs> versus, well, one day this will happen. Yeah. Facts versus dreamer. She was the most rational of rational creatures. You know, she basically was studying, she was like an epidemiologist as a hobbyist. Uh, and epidemiology is horribly complicated and, and not something that most people would do for fun, but that was kind of, that was her jam mentally, you know, like she was well into that, where we worked on a project for transitioning children uh, on the autism spectrum disorder into, and, and, and again, that spoke to the rationality and, and her, uh, she, she worked for Queensland Health, you know, like she, she was, she was studying biostatistics. She was doing a master's in that, I think. She'd done psychology. She'd completed a psychology undergraduate. Opening doors to young people with autism for the post-school transition to university, Superconductor and the Big Game Orchestra, August 2018. Maybe a quick idea of what it was about, what you two were working on. We were part of a a bigger team. Michael Whelan, who was a colleague at QUT and and has done a lot of work in that space, he was very much the the leader. And then Sophia was with us from education. And then Tara and I, Tara was helping Sophia with data collection and analysis. I helped a little bit with that, but I was building this computer game. It was the wackiest thing to do and it actually worked. I'm not sure anyone's done this before or anyone's been stupid enough to. But we built a computer game that sent real-time messages to a small orchestra. So the computer game music was performed in real time by a small orchestra because a lot of young adults on the autism spectrum uh, are quite comfortable working with computers. So we had them build a small Unity game, just a very kind of silly little two-dimensional platform shooter where they got to do the artwork for these animals and then be a wildlife photographer running around trying to photograph these animals and then there'd be a level up sequence so depending on the and you have to get enough points so then the the orchestra would be sent this message that the level up sequence is happening in three two and then they have to change the entire score so the score would adapt to the in real time to what was happening with this computer game which is a kind of crazy idea and it was weird that it worked as well as it did it was difficult to pull it off and we haven't done it again since but it was great for the kids as well because then they're playing a video game with a, like a PlayStation controller and then an orchestra would stand up and start moving towards them depending on where it was. Quite an immersive uh, experience for a dinky little platform game. And then Tara was part of the team that would interview and then code the data from the interviews to try and develop a clearer picture of what would assist young adults with autism spectrum to feel more comfortable in university setting qualitative data collection and and, and coding and she was perfectly suited to it she did a wonderful job so there was that side to her personality but then there was tara the potter and tara the songwriter and tara the pianist and cello player and the chemist or a dreamer line i think was a way that she could articulate these two competing parts of her personality the rational side and then the side that was very much i don't want to say a romantic but very much in touch with the poetry of life i guess Mm. yeah i think the dreamer one and I'm happy about that because that was the final six months of Tara's life was was true love. It was quite something. She did get the boy in the end. Yeah, yep. And that was, I think, a surprise to, probably a surprise to both of them. I don't know. Life is mysterious like that and we'll leave that chapter where that is because we're talking about a brand new record. As you said, it's been out for a few months yeah. now but released in the public only for a few Talk to us about the test pressing and how it felt when and if you spun it. I listened because that would have been February, I guess. It was only a few weeks before the album launch. And I hadn't listened to the record in probably five or six months maybe because I'd listened to it an awful lot in the six months leading up to that. It was nice to have a, a break from it. And I came home and I poured a healthy whiskey and I put it on and I listened to it. I was probably in tears halfway through the first song 
it was lovely to, to listen to it and go, well, I can't change anything now because it's finished. Mm. There's something final about a physical copy. It's like even when it's digital, it feels like I could, you know, like and, and that it felt like a record that because it was made under such trying circumstances and so quickly and so imperfectly, there's always things that I, you know, I would hear and I wanted to change. But then the beauty of vinyl is it kind of makes a few of those, it kind of blurs the edges a little bit and I didn't hear anything that I wanted to, that I couldn't live with, you know, which to me is a success. The A side is pre-diagnosis and the B side is post-diagnosis. Is that correct? Roughly, roughly correct. Right. It kind of, and it didn't, we didn't, um, well, we, I suppose I was the one left to do the album order, so I don't think we ever spoke about it. I just, that was the first one and then we just stuck with it because everyone I played it to seems kind of happy with it. Let's go through them. A Chromatopsia, yeah. Four Leaf was an early cancer song. But I can't recall if Tara had finished the vocal before diagnosis. There's a plonk piano. What the? <laughs> uh, we just found stupid names. For, like We were always using just stupid made-up names. I think it started as just the plinky plonky piano because it was massive, heavy old upright that had been left on Tara's veranda. It had just been then naturally weathered. It hadn't been tuned in a while. It was not maintained to the highest standard of upright pianos. And then she just recorded the song with that. And the vocal, I think, I think we kept, no, we retracked the main vocal and kept some of her originals as backing vocals. But the piano, you can just hear, and you can probably hear it outside here now as well. But you can hear just, you know, insects and birds in the background because it was tracked on her veranda right. on this beaten up old weathered upright that we just referred to as the plonk piano. The next one is Mess It Up Again. Mess It Up Again was definitely a post-diagnosis song. Maybe the verse had been started, and then, but the middle eight, I clearly remember Tara tracking the middle eight, and I always thought that that was alluding to her condition. But, I, you know, something like a song that we sat on for ages and then only got finished right near the end. This is blowing my theory out of the water. Maybe I'll be more successful with the next track because I think this is the... Twice Your Size was finished, yeah, yeah. Um, before. We even played that live a couple of times under a different alias. That, so it was a Castle Rays track for a brief period of time. And then, so that vocal was probably tracked in, oh, I want to say 2016, I guess. So that was one of the oldest tracks on the record. I was given the Castle Rays track, Be My Lover, in 2014, but I wasn't told what it was and I was asked very firmly to play it on the radio and I did. <laughs> so... I'm assuming it was you and Tara. No. Castle Race was just a moniker that Tara had for stuff that didn't feel like it was working under her name. So if it felt a little too kind of angular or too clubby or anything that didn't feel like it would work under a Tara Simmons release, she had this, it was like a side project for her. And the initial um, creative force behind the, those productions were Yes You. That was post trying to move mountains, I guess. And Tara was just looking for some other things to do. That might have, maybe that fizzled out a little bit. So then I started working with her again, kind of co-writing stuff in 20, I'm going to say 2015, 2014, 2015. And then we just kind of kept using that moniker, kept using the Castle Rays. And I only realised a few months before she died that that was just a play on words from Castle Ray, which is near the Blue Mountains and is where she grew up. We had plans on doing some more Castle Ray stuff. We performed live a few times and then Tara got sick and it became important that it was a Tara Simmons record and, and not a Castle Ray's record. 
Hi, I'm Cynthia Toro. My latest album is Moments, and I'm coming up on Radio Notes. Yanta Browning is our very special guest. We're midpoint having a conversation with them about the album of the year for me, Show Me Spirit Till the End. What's your most memorable experience working with or even being with Tara Simmons, the artist? I could not think of one. It was most of my 30s, basically. We spent, you know, on and off making music with Tara. I can't think of a single, it would just be cherry picking. She would say, you know, like the most outrageous things and, and we would laugh. What was the deal with pottery? That seemed to be a, a peak in the last few years. Yeah, well, her mother, Julie, is a tremendously talented painter. She's just really, you know, quite a special artist. It must be in the blood somewhere. I don't know how Tara got onto that. I was never part of it. I never went along with her. But for someone who took it up so late, some of the stuff that she would show me was really quite sophisticated for a beginner. My father was a potter. Like he spent, he was he was head of a pottery association on the Gold Coast when we lived there in Adelaide. He was a big part of the pottery community in Adelaide. I never took it up, so I'm only speaking from a casual observer but from someone who spent their childhood around pottery. But Tara's pieces were just phenomenal for someone who was starting out. I remember going, like, helping her, you know, into her car one day. She opened up her boot and it was just full of this stuff that she just fired. And I'm like, this is really good stuff. So I think she just found that as another way, a cathartic way to deal with her illness. She was like a poster child for Frankie before it became cool to be like that. She was always making things and doing things and her she bought a house, you know, really early on because it was just sensible and she found she just found a way to she just transformed the garden into this really productive garden. She had banana trees, she had really healthy tomatoes and zucchinis and we'd make pickles between making songs some days because she'd just bring all this harvest of green tomatoes to, to, to my house. She was very connected to making and doing things. Her green tomato pickle was something special. I will get back to Tara and her record, but you did mention Adelaide. Ten years of age, Bel Air, South Australia. I loved growing up in Bel Air. I have nothing but fond memories of Bel Air. I went back there because I've got a lot of family still. My grandmother lives there. I've got an auntie and an uncle in Adelaide, two cousins, I think, uh, some old family friends. I hadn't been back in years, and we took a trip last winter, mid-July. It was probably midwinter because we don't get a lot of cold up here in Brisbane. So it was, I hadn't been back for many years, but um, it was all very familiar. I, I have nothing but fond memories of growing up in Bel Air. My cousin went to Blackwood. I think he must have, Blackwood High, he must have been there around the same time as the Hilltop Woods. There wasn't a lot of hip hop that I recall in my childhood. So I, I lived in Bel Air till I was probably nine and then lived in Grange for a year when I was 10. In streak of cruelty, my parents moved me from Adelaide to Rockhampton which was, if you can think of the two cultural opposites in Australia, would probably be Adelaide to Rockhampton. I remember playing cricket in Adelaide and we'd all, you know, we'd have our nice whites and the grass would be green and then you go to Rockhampton and you kind of have one pad each and you swap bats in the middle of the crease and it's just dead grass and bindies everywhere. It was quite a shock. We had close friends in McLaren Vale, so we'd spend a lot of time at a vineyard in McLaren Vale down at Corriol and then uh, friends with a lovely old house in Glenelg that I recall really fondly. I really like Adelaide. And Belair, for those international and those not so local, has a national park at the doorstep for which uh, Senator Sarah Hansen-Young regularly, because she's in that area, regularly goes for her morning runs and stuff. Mm. So did you, at a young age, Yanto, have a connection with the environment or at least the natural? Oh, yeah. 
Yeah, we lived right on the hill in Bel Air, and we had a fairly decent enough property. It was it was certainly big enough to kind of bush bash around. You can go all the way down the hill into these gullies, and I remember so many walks. We'd and we'd go for long hikes. You know, we'd do Kangaroo Island, and then down around Karakalinga for a bit as well. So we did a lot of walking and hiking growing up. It's beautiful up here as well, but Adelaide has a very different coastline, very stark in its beauty, I think. Session Quartet, Ed Cooper. Oh, yeah. Uh, Tara had a way of, it was just serendipitous, but she was not backwards and coming forwards. So if she just happened to be around, she'd say, hey, I'm around, come, I want to come and see you. And it's like, uh, yeah, well, yeah, yeah, okay, I'm just in the studio. And we were doing a um, record with Ed Cooper from The Saints, He's kind of called it the Ain'ts now, I think. And he'd been revitalising some old um, Saints songs with a string quartet arrangement that Rob Davidson had been working on. And Rob and Tara go way back because Rob Davidson played in Tara's band for ages. And Tara just happened to be around and she said, well, I think I'd like a string quartet on one of my songs too. And then just kind of muscled in at the end of the session and we tracked the end of a chromatopsia during one of those sessions. Then we did a string quartet and piano version of Ghosts in the Silences. I'll have to find one day and kind of release as a B-side or something. It was beautiful. It was really nice. Rob Davison just does wonderful arrangements and seems to suit what Tara does. Working on a string quartet version of some Saint songs with Ed, and at the end of that session, he left and the producer left, and Tara said, what do I need to give the string players to get him to stick around for half an hour and put this down? I think we did it in two takes. I would have first played you, I think, back in 2004, Kate Miller-Heike's Telegram. EP came out. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that was some of the, the early work I did that got some traction. I still maintain that a half-deaf monkey probably could have not ruined a Kate Miller-Heike record. It was nice to get the opportunity. I have taken on a full-time teaching role at QUT as of the last, what are we up to, two and a half years now, I guess. So in the year that Tara got crook, I think that was the first year, 2000 and, no, it was 2018, 19, and now we're in 20. I always maintained some, like a day or so here and there of teaching music production and then having your first child and then having a mortgage and then I, I might flatter myself in saying that I may have been able to maintain a career and eke out enough freelance work to kind of, you know, keep things going. But the hours, just the lifestyle, I mean, I miss it dearly often. But also, it's like 12-hour days, six or seven days a week are not on common in the studio. You start at 10, and then you'd kind of be home between 8 and 10, maybe. And the last night, it might be even later still. And it just seemed like if you can have children, you're kind of committed to the idea that you need to be able to spend time with those children. So I started angling for some more work at QT and and was lucky enough to get some contract positions that eventually turned into a full-time position. So I sort of transitioned out of freelancing and into comfortable middle-aged suburban existence where I could actually be a father to my child and be around for children now and, and be around for bath and bedtime rather than trying to get a vocal take right and, and rushing through the end of the day, which isn't really what you can be doing if you're making records. And I've maintained a, a presence by doing records here and there. I, did, I recorded the Halfway record that came out. I think that was a pretty good, good sounding record. They're a great band. I'm trying to think what else I've done recently. Leanne Tennant's record I worked on. I probably wasn't half in the end, maybe a third of the songs on that. She's great. She's an amazing talent. So I would find time to do a week or two every six months or so. But I was finding that I was taking leave to work more. Like it just felt like eventually it was becoming unsustainable because I could never have a holiday because I always had to be at work somewhere. 
when I didn't have any commitments, I was entirely fine with having my entire life be the studio mm. because it's quite a social thing as well. Although you meet people and then you become friends for a week or two weeks and then you might revitalize that friendship six months down the track. But I kind of, I just forget names all the time because these people would tr- kind of drift in and out of my life. But if you're in, in that world, you're a lifer. And I spent the best part of my life in that world. And then Tara's record became a, almost a transition out of kind of freelancing because the free time that I had available would then be allocated to this, what became a creative partnership rather than a gun for hire arrangement. It's Tara's record, but in a way we're, we're co-creators. I think she's the author, but we kind of made it together. How are you feeling about being in the studio now that you don't have that music collaborator at your side? I'll be honest with you, I have had almost no kind of creative impulses. Like I've been, this past year has just flown by and there's a bunch of things downstairs, you know, like some are collecting dust. I pulled out some modular synthesizers to try and keep my two-year-old entertained the other day because they have lots of flashing lights and make some pretty wacky noises, you know, and I've got a couple of Tara's instruments that she left me. But I haven't really felt any urge to do much myself. And I don't feel like I need to push that at the moment. Uh, Down the line, things might come. And so when I have been in the studio, it's been on very, very kind of technical jobs rather than creative jobs. So I've been kind of engineering more than producing when I have been in the studio, mixing a bit where I don't have to feel like I have to have creative contributions. The few times I've been in the studio in the past year has mostly been in the service of other people's ideas. I've been fine with that. And either the urge will return and I'll be well set up or somewhere down the line I'll just start going, do I need this much gear in my life anymore? And starting to, you know, like offload some of it and and slip gently into a life in academia. And parenthood. And parenthood, exactly, yeah. I still have a studio in the Valley that another local producer who's doing amazing work, he's just kind of leasing it off me now. And even with Tara's record, I didn't really feel like I wanted to be in that environment. I was quite happy doing stuff at my house and Tara had her little setup at her house and we'd sneak into the QT studios, you know, when I'd finish work some days when no one else was using them. They were nice to, you know, have a generally have a blind eye to that. There's a Tara Simmons scholarship at QUT and it was given to someone called Tessa Fleur who has a song called Sunset Melancholy. The Tara Simmons scholarship is testament to the generosity and the character of, of Tara's family who having inherited the estate of Tara, decided that the best thing to do with that estate is to to return it to the local music community and try and help out a musician and provide them with some support that hopefully allow them to pursue dreams in a way that wouldn't have been as possible otherwise. And that's through the QUT Bachelor of Fine Arts Music Program. Yeah, Tessa's the first recipient and hopefully we'll have a chance to um, connect soon once this COVID stuff calms down. Kevin Grant's latest album is called Small Tits, Big Dreams, which allegedly is the (laughs) title that Tara gave the the album. That sounds like a Tara title. And there's also a song for Tara. Have you had a listen to that song? I I think I heard a little bit of it on Instagram, you know, like a a brief excerpt. I should go back and actually check that out. What music are you listening to right now when you're not listening to the screams of children? I've been listening an awful lot to the Milk Carton Kids. I think because there's just no studio trickery to be heard. Two guys with two guitars, two voices and a couple of microphones and I love how they've pursued this minimalist aesthetic to the point where 
and I've seen them live a couple of times. I'm gutted that the tours have to be, you know, cancelled because no one's going to come into Australia. So I've been on a real, that, that sort of, you know, neo-traditional folk trip. And then I listen to a lot of almost ambient electronica, Alessandro Cortini. I've really enjoyed the new Nine Inch Nails Ghosts record, almost like film soundtrack stuff to a film that hasn't been made. Stuff that doesn't have vocals in it, I've been gravitating towards. I don't know what to make of that. Well, Maybe because it's been also when I've been working, doing kind of writing work, it's if there are people, in, and I wear headphones a lot for that, if there are people talking in your ear, I can't think as clearly, but if the music is, it's almost like post-classical minimalism in a way. I know we're going back, but you mentioned voices. What was it like recording the vocals in the hospital? That was a tough thing. That was a real, you know, like, I mean, I'm sure it was much tougher for Tara who knew she was about to die and had to summon up the strength to actually sing. But just to see, your, just to, to kind of be confronted with that stage of life and death, but to, to still be concerned with the practicalities of recording levels and, and the quality of a take mid-summer and we had to turn off the air conditioning in the Pal Care ward and shut the windows to keep all the industrial noise out. You could hear all the air conditioners around the outside of the hospital. And so it was pretty stuffy. It was the most confronting mix of the mundane technicalities of noise and, and the inconvenience of heat and the sort of sacred experience of seeing somebody coming to terms with the end of their life and finding a way to express that through a song. You'd be kind of worrying about the microphone position and then realising that you probably wouldn't ever be making music together again. It was, Yeah, that was hard. Our daughter would have been just past one at the time. They came to stay high and, and when we'd finished and then we brought her a treat and like a glass jar, which then she proceeded to smash on the floor. So then my final memory of the session is that sort of mundane, there's Tara perched on the bed and there's a hospital wardy in there with a broom cleaning up this kind of mess as we say goodbye and I cut out recording gear. Little Tara just perched on the bed and, and it was, it was, I'll never forget that day. That was, that was hard. So glad we managed to get it done. That's on the record. People can hear those vocals. That's on the record. And we only wrote the second verse just before we sang. You know, that she'd never got that second verse written. So we wrote the second verse together to try and go through some other places Tara had been where she could have died suddenly and violently but didn't. Um, uh, and, that's her you know, humour coming through. With. Yeah, we joked about calling the record 10 songs about boys and a song about dying, and that was always the song about dying. The rest of the record it alludes to it but never deals with it directly. What are you reading at the moment? I just finished East of Eden. That was a great book. I'm reading a book on American minimalism. I forget who wrote that. Uh, and I have to read a bunch of stuff for work, so my reading tends to be quite academically focused of late. What else is on my bedside table? That book about Brisbane, Boys Ball of Universe. I love that book. That was great. Trent Dalton. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was great. Gave me a whole new appreciation of Brisbane because I didn't grow up here. You know, I only came here when I was 19 or 20. I finished that recently too. Talking about the PhD, have no idea what you're writing about. Oh, no, let's not talk no? about that. It's not finished. No one wants to talk about that until it's done. No, it's kind of about music and place and the, and the relationship between the two. But I'm still trying to figure out some of what that means. I've got... Um... Indie 100, India 2018 on my list of readings downloaded. Another paper that you did. Oh, wow. Oh, that was with Christina Kelman. I feel like she did the heavy lifting on that one, to be <laughs> honest. And I was more part of the making the indie. Because we go to India every year and, and make, make a record over there, Gee. which is pretty crazy. That happened as well in the, in the months leading up to Tara's record being finished. 
each November, December, we go to India, cut 10 songs with some local artists and try and build some connections with that growing market, which is going to be harder again now that no one's going anywhere. Let's return to the record you did with Tara and particularly the lineup of it. Contributing performers on drums, for example, I've jotted down Chris O'Neill, but together there's a bit of consistency in terms of the performers across the record as well. Yeah, well, Chris O'Neill had played with Tara for the best part of 20 years. He's really busy working at APRA now and um, he's in Melbourne. So we had to find a weekend that we, you know, studio, we could get studio time, that he was free, that Tara was healthy. But it was great that we managed to get him on. So the majority of like the drumming is Chris. And then the two tracks were Sam Hales. Tara was just really enamoured with the drum sounds on the Jungle Giants record, Quiet Ferocity. I worked on the, the first Jungle Giants record and Tara knows Sam because she's really good friends with Sam's sister, Emma. And then Consti, who's recorded and mixed the last record, is an old friend of mine and he's now the guy who's leasing my studio. So I, I talk to Consti all the time. So when it came to like, I'd be in the studio trying to do it with samples or Chris would be there, but we'd only have a big live room. So we couldn't kind of get the sort of dead sound that we were after. And eventually I just went, Tara, let's just ask them if we can just get them to do two songs because I'm just going around in circles trying to replicate that sound. We might as well just ask the people who made it to see if they can help. We call those the potato drums because they just sound so flat or so kind of dead sounding. And yeah, Sam and Consti gave us a day in the studio. So did Empire Studios where we cut it. That was those two songs. That suited the sort of LCD sound system vibe for those. And then James Wright plays in a band with Dean McGrath. Dean had been driving force in helping Ghosts in the Sciences finally come together because that's another song we had floating around for ages. He pops up on Beg and Plead as well, doesn't he? Those songs wouldn't have probably been finished if it wasn't for Dean. Certainly not to the kind of extent that they feel so complete now. Ghost had been kicking around for years. We played that live as Castle Rays. And then we did the piano and string quartet version. And then Dean heard the original and went, no, this is going to work. Let's just do this to it. And then Tara and he spent some time in the studio. Really great production on that. It's really ass backwards because usually you start with drums and all the songs with live drums, the final things we did were drums. Let's go and mess it up. The final things were Sam's drums. Most of the songs that Chris played on, final things, drums. Ghost in the Silences, Tara came out of power. That was like, that was maybe the, one of the last times I saw, that was after the vocal session. She came a few days after the vocal session with her mum so her mum could see how things go in the studio. And that was at Plutonium, who again were generous in giving us some studio time. So we spent half a day at Plutonium with James getting down the drums for Ghost in the Silences and Tara came to check on them and so Julie could have some time with her in the studio. She was fighting to the end but in a way of determination in terms of getting that album done with you. It gave her a, a focal point. It was something that I don't have the experience that, that she's had, but as an observer, it seems like time in the studio is like time in some other pursuits. I think they call it, you know, like in academia, they kind of call it flow where you're in the moment. If you're in the moment, you can lose track of time a little bit, but also you're not burdened by the concerns of your life. That to me seems to hold true even to dealing with terminal illness in that there are moments that where you can enter this kind of creative state and escape that for a time. And I think that's what Tara found in pottery. Quite sure that that's what she found occasionally in music. And that's not to say that the day would disappear and it would be nothing but that, but you could steal moments of it. I could tell when Tara was, was able to, to, it was a way to, to, you know, like relieve the burden for, for a time. That to me is as important as what people think of the record because it's it, that was the the purpose was its making, and I'm glad we got it done to an extent that I know that she would have been happy with it. 
I know that meant a lot to her, but even just the, the making of it was the purpose, I think. And in the end, her biggest worry that I can't finish my record on time, it feels like my legacy because I don't have kitties. Well, she has the record. It's out. It's available. Yeah. And that is also all of the crew, you know, like Viv and, and Maggie, Dean. I'm going to forget people because I'm, I'm always terrible when it comes to this. Ange Cola, you know, the people who have helped make that record, everyone at Gyrostream, the people who have helped the record see the light of day. Tyler McLaughlin has been instrumental and key. And, you a know, legend. Like, yeah, an absolute legend. One of Tara's good friends, but also just so amazing when it's come to all the nuts and bolts, things that I couldn't do. I always joke like I make sausages, I don't know how to sell them. So that team, they've been instrumental in making sure that that concern of Tara's needn't have been a concern. Yanto Browning, music collaborator and producer. Tara Simmons' final album, Show Me Spirit Till the End, available now. And for a limited vinyl copy, head to teamtarasimmons.bandcamp.com. Next time, The Bell Streets, talking about their debut record. Thanks very much to Yanto Browning for being our guest this episode. Radionotespodcast.com for show notes and links. Web design there by Steve Davis. Theme music by Martin Kennedy and All India Radio. I'm Tammy Weller. John Murch is the producer and host based in Adelaide, South Australia. Mm-hmm.